Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines. With the annual American Society for Virology meeting coming up in less than one week, we are talking with students and postdoctoral researchers who will be attending the meeting. Thanks for talking with us today. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Well, thanks for having me, Larissa. Um, So my name is Clayton Wollner. I'm a it's hard to say, I'm at the end of my fourth year, beginning of my fifth year graduate student in the Richner Lab at University of Illinois at Chicago College of Medicine. Just tell us a little bit about how did you get into science in the first place and then virology? Sure. So, I mean, virology in general, um, I love it, but how did I get here? So, As with any scientist, I suppose I started with a general interest in science and then ended up majoring in that um, at my alma mater, which was University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And I actually remember like what class I was in when my interest was sort of peaked. And it was actually my microbiology class in spring 2013. Um, The lecturer was Dr. Mark McBride. He probably doesn't remember me because the lecture hall was filled with a lot of students, but I remember him. And he was sort of talking about the host pathogen relationship just um, with infectious diseases in general. And he clicks on the next slide and he starts talking about the red queen hypothesis. And whenever a scientist uses, you know, a different sort of art form, in this case, literature to explain a scientific concept, my interest is definitely peaked. So I got real wide eyed and was listening very intently. And I'm sure I don't need to tell a lot of people what it is, but it's it's this concept to explain the never ending arms race between host and pathogen. And in the case of the Red Queen hypothesis, it's a line from Lewis Carroll's book, Through the Looking Glass. Um, and the line is, um, I believe the Red Queen is saying this to Alice and it's now here you see it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. Perfect line to describe the host pathogen relationship, considering as soon as the host gains an upper advantage, the infectious disease will gain an upper advantage. And essentially this is what's gonna go on forever. And it's not that I like love that people get infected with diseases, but for me, it represented this opportunity to go into a field that would challenge me for the rest of my life. And that was really enticing. And viruses, I think specifically came along a little afterward when I learned a little bit more about them. I just thought that they were cool. They're sort of the original hijackers. They hijack our own machinery to grow themselves up. Um, So I just thought that they were interesting. Well, and had you had um, sort of exposure to sciences before? Were there people in your family or sort of, you know, in grade school or high school? Had you been exposed to science there as well? I mean, just sort of in general, you know, in middle school and high school, there are always, you know, top tier teachers that really made it the priority to teach me. Um, But up until, you know, the specific example I gave you, it was sort of just a general interest in science. Um, And then as far as like family members, no one in my family is, you know, classically trained as a scientist or virologist. In fact, I'm a first generation college student. So all of this was very new to me going forward with it. Right. And can you tell us a little bit of sort of like, how did you end up in your current lab? So how did you pick your graduate institution? And then how did you pick the lab that you ended up uh, being in? Right. 
So graduate institution choices. Yeah, I think I applied to about five institutions for graduate school. Um, obviously, all of them had to have um, research that I was interested in doing. Um, and then additionally, I chose places that I wanted to live in since you are living where you go to graduate school for five, six plus years, uh, might as well be somewhere you want to live. Um, ultimately, I got an acceptance letter from UIC and joined and started to do rotations actually within the microbiology and immunology department with a lot of really great scientists. Um, and it, it is a funny story since you asked me, um, in my program, we traditionally do three rotations and, you know, for whatever reason, the first three didn't work out and I was kind of bummed out. I ended up having to look for a fourth rotation while all of my friends had already joined their permanent labs. And, you know, having met a lot of dead ends, I actually just decided to meet with the department chair, Susan Ross, and she was absolutely instrumental in helping me find a lab. She emailed me the next day after I met with her and she said, there's this new PI, he literally just arrived. I don't know if he's accepting graduate students, but it can't hurt to check him out. And so I did, and the rest is history. I ended up joining this lab and actually getting to do a project that, that was exactly what I was looking for. Because by the time I realized I was really interested in viruses, I specifically wanted to work on vaccine development. And that's exactly what I'm getting to do now. Great, so why don't you tell us a little bit about this work? Sure, um, so since you've worked with Justin before, you probably knew that he did some previous work with an mRNA vaccine against Zika virus. Um, and so when he got his own lab, it was obviously on his radar to possibly explore that further with other um, viruses. Um, dengue being, you know, very closely related to Zika, both of them being flaviviruses, and with dengue being, you know, an issue that's still not fully addressed, um, he wanted to explore this. And I was, you know, definitely for it. So in a nutshell, what we've done is we've created a vaccine against dengue virus. But instead of delivering, you know, maybe a weakened form of the virus or even subunit proteins, we deliver RNA um, to the host cells. And then the host cells themselves actually make the antigen of interest, which is still recognized as foreign and mounts a subsequent immune response. And then I guess sort of the special like hot word thing that we're using is the lipid nanoparticles, which just rolls off the tongue. It sounds so cool to say, it's so sciencey, but that was really a game changer for the RNA field in general, since it represented a way to protect the RNA and also efficiently deliver it. And ultimately we, we also introduced some mutations into the envelope protein of dengue. And I don't wanna go down a rabbit hole, but we did that to avoid a negative immune response that can actually enhance infection, which is something that you see a lot in flaviviruses. Um, and some of our more notable findings was that we were able to see protection from this vaccine. So initially we did in vitro um, transfections with the RNA just to confirm that we were getting envelope expression. From those actual experiments, the, um, the in vitro experiments, we were also able to confirm that we were getting production of what's called a virus-like particle, which is basically a viral particle. It's not infectious for whatever reason. In this case, it's because it doesn't contain viral genome. It also doesn't contain capsid protein, and it is also a little bit smaller than um, an infectious dengue virus particle. Um, so after we were able to see those promising results in vitro, obviously the next step was to go in vivo. 
Um, so essentially we did a prime boost of C57 black six mice, and we just characterized their neutralizing antibody response, and we were able to see neutralization. Um, after that, we moved ahead to use an immunocompromised mouse model, which is the AG129 mouse model, which is interferon alpha, beta, and gamma receptor deficient, which makes them permissible to dengue infection. And we actually did this in two different ways. We directly infected the AG129 mice, and we also passively transferred serum from the vaccinated C57 black 6 mice into the AG129 mice. And in both instances, we were able to see very good protection. Um, and the second, the second experiment we did, the passive transfer was really important for us because when you don't have an interferon response with RNA, you're gonna get more protein production and subsequently a higher neutralizing antibody titer. So it was really important that we were able to test the efficacy with the neutralizing response from an immunocompetent mouse model. And we actually just published this paper um, in um, Journal of Virology. So if anyone wants to check it out, they're more than welcome to. Great, great. And so I guess what are the next steps then? So now that you have sort of like a good uh, vaccine, what, what sort of next? That's a great question. So our, our initial um, research concentrated on dengue virus serotype 1. Um, a lot of virologists out there will know that there are four distinct serotypes of dengue. And instead of biting off more than we could chew, we decided to chip away at the problem. Let's see if we can get one serotype to work. Let's see if we can get protection from that. Having that now, obviously the natural next steps are to move on to serotypes two, three, and four. Um, and as of right now, I've been able to get in vitro expression with that. Um, and so we're gonna figure out when we can do some in vivo experiments for that. Um, another thing which I'll be touching upon in my presentation for ASV is that we are looking at using heterologous prime boosts in order to see if we can possibly get a neutralizing antibody response that's cross-reactive against multiple flaviviruses. So if we prime with dengue 1 and boost with dengue 2, for instance, are we going to be able to get a pan-dengue virus? Or if we boost with one flavivirus, I'm sorry, if we prime with one flavivirus and boost with another, are we going to get a pseudo-pan-flavy vaccine? So this is the part for me that's really fun that I get to sort of play around with different combinations. Oh, cool. And since you're getting sort of more towards the end of your PhD, what are you thinking about next? Are you still interested in sort of an academic postdoc? Are you interested in industry or something else? What are you thinking about now? That is an excellent question. I wish I had a more definitive answer, but right now I am definitely open to both. I will be looking for both academic postdoc positions as well as positions in industry. Um, as a lot of people know, you know, RNA is sort of a hot topic now. A lot of people know about Moderna and the Pfizer collaboration with BioNTech. And so there's actually a lot of opportunity for me to sort of use these skills in industry if that's the direction I want to go. But I also acknowledge that there's still a lot more for me to learn. And if the right postdoc popped up on my radar, I am currently researching those right now. Um, I would definitely be open to it because I've learned a lot um, in my current lab and I think that I could learn just as much in another. Great. And 
Can you talk a little bit about sort of, I guess, what this past uh, year and a half has been like for you sort of as a virologist, but then also just as a person? What, what has it been like living through this pandemic, studying RNA vaccines or sort of intimately and, in, you know, have a lot of knowledge about, you know, the vaccines and what have you and the science behind what's been going on. So what's that been like? Right. So as, as a scientist, the pandemic has been nothing short of a whirlwind, um, as it has been for everyone. But what I'm finding out now is that I, I feel this immense pressure to become a, an expert um, on coronavirus, which is not directly what I'm working with, but is obviously very important. Um, besides that, I mean, my work marched on as any graduate student would tell you it needs to um, we stopped for nothing pretty much um, taking precautions however when i needed to come into lab um, as a human being um, again whirlwind um, i also identify as an introvert but this pandemic really pushed me to the limit i felt a little isolated and i was like i'm ready to see people again and interact with people again so i wasn't as introverted as i thought i would be um, and then I guess uh, thinking just to talk to you a little bit more specifically, so you were talking about the sort of the nanoparticle, the lipid nanoparticles. Is this something that is different between different, um, I guess, RNA platforms? So, so people might not be that familiar with that part of it. We, like, we, we hear a lot about the mRNA part, but can you talk a little bit about the lipid part? That is an excellent question. And luckily I am somewhat prepared for it because me and Justin wrote a review on RNA flaviviruses vaccines. And I definitely don't pretend to be, you know, a chemist. So I can't fully speak to the formulations, some of which are proprietary anyway, but I will say definitely there are differences in the, I would call it lipid technology that people use only because in our instance, in the Richner lab, we do very much use lipid nanoparticles that you know encap encapsulate the RNA and protect it and deliver it. Um, while we were writing our review, we also saw something that some people refer to as like an, a nano emulsion, um, which isn't necessarily encapsulating the RNA, but sort of interacting with it and attaching to it, if you will, as a way to deliver it. And what was really exciting about those nano emulsions is they were able to be mixed bedside essentially immediately before being delivered. And that actually offers a lot of opportunity to sort of optimize and make more efficient the delivery of the vaccines themselves. Um, so that maybe you could transport the two main component components, the lipid components and the RNA components separately and then mix them together when you need them. So um, yeah, I can't speak too much more to that, but it's very exciting to see how many options there are available. Right, right. All right, well, we look forward to your talk at ASB and thank you very much for uh, talking with us today. Thanks for having me, Larissa. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Backright.